You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. My extrovert batteries are completely depleted because I had to run a Mario Kart tournament this week at work since the movie's out and I work for the company that made that movie. So it's been a lot of a lot of Mario this week. <laughs> lots of lots of video gaming, which I'm not I had to pretend I was more adept at than I actually am. Um, So like last week, I'm thrilled to just be hunkered down in my apartment right now for the weekend. And I'm only planning on going out for provisions and sunshine. And I'll save having a social life for another time. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Scream 6 and Mafia Mama, which I think has still gotten a reviewer's embargo on it, but I'm not technically a reviewer, so I think I'm good. So first, Scream 6. Other than the first two Scream films, I think this one might actually have been my favorite. Even though historically when horror movies change location from where they've been for the majority to a new place, it doesn't tend to go well. Though I guess two and three did that, so never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I really liked this one. I really, really liked Scream 6. I thought it was a great departure from what had come before, but it was still reminiscent. It was it was great. It was gory. It was scary. The twist was decent and it was a good ride. All the way through the main chick was less annoying to me this time i thought she was too like bemoaning in the first one or the fifth one but this one she she was good so i was i was happy to see that transformation and i actually can't wait to see this one again it's i haven't been able to say that about a screen film in a while i liked them all but wasn't in a rush to see them again then there was Mafia Mama, which was about an American woman recently separated from her slacker husband, taking over as the head of a crime family after the death of her estranged grandfather. This movie was fine. It wasn't great. It was fine. It was better than what I was anticipating, which was trash, because as someone with Italian uh, descent, as someone who is of Italian descent, I guess I should say, been a rough, been a, it's been a rough ride with stereotypes, whether it be little... Little plumber men or just people from New Jersey acting like being rude is part of being an Italian when it's not really. It's a it's a Jersey thing. I'm pretty sure not a an Italian thing because my family. Well, hmm. uh, <laughs> so this I think I was just more relieved when I saw this movie that it wasn't like so painfully stereotypical. There were ones that were there, but they were less exploitative than, you know, the accent. So that was nice. I think that was the thing I really, I was re I was relieved to see that. So I kind of excused some of the lesser and quality parts of this movie. And it was also actually nice to just see Italian actors actually playing Italians, which is, which is nice to see unless you're John Leguizamo and for some reason you want Latino people to play Italians, which is a thing he's making a stink about in the Mario movie. So that's a thing. Um, Italians are not Latinos. We are, we are white people. Uh, we are tanner white people, but we are white people. 
But yeah, the movie is basically Eat, Pray, Love meets The Godfather. And you'll know this pretty early on because it's the two movies that this movie keeps bringing up repeatedly throughout. So in case there was any question, this movie was Eat, Pray, Love meets The Godfather. It was also way gorier than I thought, which I thought was fun because... Otherwise, this, it probably didn't have a lot going for it. Again, I was just relieved it wasn't super overtly, you know, stereotypical. As much as I hate to say it, you could probably wait for this one on streaming. It feels more like a streaming rainy day or sick from work type movie than anything else. And now that I've rambled on for uh, six minutes before I edit this down, let's get into this week's topic. This week, the story of one of the greatest rock and roll bands to ever hit the stage, Queen. We'll go over a brief history of the band to the point covered in the film Bohemian Rhapsody, the making of the film, and go over just how accurate the film was to what actually happened. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Brian May was a mathematics and physics student at Imperial College London when he founded the band Smile in 1968. The lineup of this band included Tim Staffel as the lead singer and bassist, and after answering an ad, drummer Roger Taylor. The band enjoyed a small following from 1968 until 1970, until Staffel suddenly left the band in 1970. Before that happened, though, Staffel had become friends with Farouk Freddy Bulsara, who was a graphic arts student at Isleworth Polytechnic that had an affinity of the local music scene, including and especially the band Smile. Freddie had formally asked if he could join the group as lead singer, but Brian felt that Staffel would not give up that role to just be the bass player, so Freddie found work in other bands in the meantime. He also ran a stall in Kensington Market with Roger. In 1970, after Staffel quit Smile, he formed the group Humpy Bong, and the rest is deep, deep, deep music history. However, the remaining Smile members recruited Freddie as the new lead singer and recruited Roger's friend Mike Gross to be the new bassist. The four played their first gig at a fundraising event in Truro, I think is how you say it, on June 27, 1970. Around this time, Freddie suggested the group should be renamed Queen. The others were iffy of this at first, but Freddie was insistent. So they changed the name. Around this time as well, Freddie also legally changed his name, specifically his surname, to Mercury, which was inspired by a line in their song, My Fairy King. As the newly reminted band Queen began gaining traction in the local music scene, they got the attention of producer John Anthony, who was interested in the group's sound, but thought they had the wrong bass player. So, after just three live gigs, Mike Gross decided to leave and was replaced by Barry Mitchell. Mitchell played 13 gigs with Queen, so he lasted a little bit longer, but he also left in 1971. He was replaced by Doug Bogie, who lasted two whole gigs. 
John Deacon would join the band as bassist in February 1971. On July 2nd of that same year, Queen would play their first show with their classic lineup, as you're probably familiar with them. And that was of Freddie Mercury, Roger Taylor, Brian May, and John Deacon. The gig took place at Surrey College, which was just outside of London. The group soon found themselves in the recording studio after an acquaintance of theirs, Terry Yeadon, who was an engineer at Pi Studios, told the band they could record some demos in exchange for the studio's acoustic test. They had just built this brand new studio. The Queen members recorded five of their own songs, including Keep Yourself Alive, which got the attention of a producer that had stopped in while they were recording, probably to check out to see how the acoustic test was going. The producer was impressed enough that he actually took some of the tapes and began playing them for several record companies around town. Ultimately, the band got a management deal under Trident Productions, which would enable them access to their facilities whilst their managers searched for a record deal for the band. Under this deal, Queen were able to make use of the high-tech recording facilities used by signed musicians. Starting in 1972, the band took a break from gigging and spent eight months recording songs in between clashing with producers who weren't super enthusiastic about how Queen wanted their albums to sound. What They Yielded was an unreleased album that managed to get the attention of EMI Records, whom offered them a record deal, and released the band's self-titled debut on July 13, 1973. It was received as a, quote, above-average debut by one critic. Their second album, Queen 2, released just eight months later. It's crazy how quick albums came out back then. In April 1974, the band started touring the United States as the opener for the band Mott the Hoople. But May collapsed a month into the tour and was diagnosed with an illness which forced the cancellation of the remaining dates for Queen as the opener, obviously. Mott the Hoople didn't cancel their tour. While recovering, May was unable to be present as the band worked on their third album, Sheer Heart Attack, but he managed to return about halfway through the recording process on that album. Released in November 1974, Sheer Heart Attack reached number two in the UK and actually went gold in the US. This album features the song Killer Queen, which was their first song to chart in the United States. Seeing as the album was quite successful, in 1975, Queen kicked off their first world tour. But despite all this success, like clearly like they were doing it, Queen was still stuck in the original Trident deal, which included a fixed income that reflected the work of a band who didn't just have chart-topping albums and go on a world tour. In fact, they were all living in a state of poverty, more or less. John Deacon tried to get a loan for a house for his family because, you know, they'd done all these things and Trident had the audacity to tell them no, that they couldn't afford it. So to get them out of it, EMI hired lawyer Jim Beach, who tried to find a way to free Queen from their oppressive contract. Trident complained that they had invested £200,000 in Queen and wanted their money back first. By the way, there's no way they didn't earn that off them given everything that happened. In August, the split with Trident was finalized and the band was on the search for new management. They, being Queen, ended up contacting Elton John's manager, John Reed, to take up this role, and he accepted the job. Reed's first instruction to the band was, quote, I'll take care of the business. You make the best record you can. And do that they did. 
Queen started work on their fourth album, A Night at the Opera, not long after. At the time, it was the most expensive album ever produced, costing £40,000, and was recorded in three different recording studios. The most memorable song from this album, I probably don't have to tell you, is Bohemian Rhapsody. EMI initially refused to release this song as the single, which is what the band wanted to do, because they thought it was too long at just under six minutes. Instead, they tried to force the band to mix a radio edit, but Queen refused to do this. To get around this and to be a little sneaky, I'm sure, Freddie's close friend, a radio DJ, was given a promotional copy of the song on the condition he quote-unquote didn't play it, but the radio DJ ended up playing that song 14 times over a single weekend. EMI's phone lines were overwhelmed with callers inquiring about when the song was going to be released, so that pretty much forced their hands. EMI unsurprisingly released Bohemian Rhapsody and the single reached number one in the UK and stayed up there for nine weeks. And to this day, it is the third highest selling single in UK history. The song was promoted with a music video, one of the first of its kind, which the Rolling Stone would state, quote, practically invented the music video seven years before MTV went on the air. Also on this album is the song Love of My Life, which was written by Freddie, presumably for his girlfriend at the time, Mary Austin, whom he met through Brian, who had briefly dated her. The two lived together, meaning Freddie and Austin, for several years in Kensington, but by the mid-1970s, he had begun an affair with a male American record executive who some surmise the song might actually be about. In December 1976, Freddie told Austin of his sexuality, which ended their romantic relationship, but the two remained close friends for the duration of Freddie's life. He often referred to her as his one and only true friend and his common-law wife. Both parties would oftentimes compare their relationship to that of a marriage. After another world tour, Queen was back in the recording studio in 1976, this time for the album A Day at the Races, which is often considered the sequel album to A Night at the Opera. This album yielded another highly successful tour, including a gig at Hyde Park in London on September 18th, which saw an attendance of 150,000 people. A similar level of success happened for their next album as well, 1977's News of the World, and then again for 1978's Jazz. After two years of touring, the band released 1980's The Game, and in February 1981, Queen traveled to South America as part of a tour for that particular album, becoming the first major rock band to play stadium-level shows in Latin America. The highest attendance for one of these gigs happened in Buenos Aires. 300,000 people showed up to see Queen perform. In 1982, the band released the album Hot Space, which was a departure from their trademark 70s sound, and they exchanged that for a mixture of, quote, pop rock, disco, funk, and R&B. Most of the album was recorded in Munich, which is one of the places the band would stay for a chunk of the year to avoid UK resident taxes because they were now individually quite wealthy and the tax was quite high. So if they lived like half a year plus one day somewhere else, that means they didn't have to pay those taxes. Very sneaky. Freddie and John liked this new sound. They were creating 
for hot space, but Brian and Roger uh, did not. They were a little bit more apprehensive. They were also a bit perturbed by the rising influence of Freddie's personal manager, Paul Prenter, as he had Freddie's ear and as a result, wasn't always making the best decisions. Prenter hated rock and roll music. And despite, you know, the bandmates being critical of Prenter and just his whole kind of way of operating, he was dismissive of the importance of radio stations, which at the time was a key way for bands to get into contact with their fans. It was through the radio. There wasn't social media. The ra- they lived or died by the radio and Prenter didn't seem to care, which was obviously a huge source of frustration for the other members of the band. Prenter also had a nasty habit of trying to keep Freddie away from the other members of the band, so also not great. Prenter would ultimately be fired for betraying Freddie after it came out that he'd been selling his personal information to UK newspapers. And this whole era in general has been considered by several, including the members of the band, as the most turbulent era for the original four. The band also stopped touring in North America after this tour as their success there had waned, although they would perform on SNL on September 25th, 1982. They didn't know it at the time, but this would be their final public performance in North America with the original four. Their fall in popularity in the U.S., by the by, has been partially attributed to a growing sense of homophobia as conservatism ran rampant within the country after, you know, Vietnam and the hippie movements and all that stuff. After the Hot Space Tour came to a close in November 1982, Queen decided to take a significant amount of time off. For them, significant meant about nine months. It wasn't super long. During this time, the members of the band dabbled in solo projects, John released a single, Roger released his second solo album, and Freddie and Brian released their first solo albums, respectively. The break seemed to do them good, because after they came back together, they yielded arguably their best album since A Day at the Races, which was 1984's The Work, which features the songs Radio Gaga, Hammer to Fall, and I Want to Break Free. One bad thing did come out of it, though. Uh, The music video, I Want to Break Free, was banned from MTV because the four members appeared in drag extensively in the music video, which, you know, again, conservatism was on the rise. A few months after the tour for the works had come to an end, the band played Live Aid, a 1985 concert held to provide relief for the people of Ethiopia as the country was going through a multi-year famine. The July 13th concert was attended by 72,000 people in person and 1.9 billion people on television. Queen was described as many as the highlight of the entire two-day affair, and the performance is one of the most famous in rock and roll history. Now, this is where the film Bohemian Rhapsody ends, but if you're aware of this story at all, and if you've seen the film, you know that a couple of things portrayed in the film haven't happened yet in this brief history. So in early 1986, Queen recorded the album A Kind of Magic, which contained several reworkings of songs they'd written for the film Highlander. That year would also see the Magic Tour, which would be the last tour featuring their charismatic frontman. Around this time, fans began to notice Freddie's rapidly changing and increasingly gaunt appearance in 1988 is when this kind of started happening. As a result, the media began reporting that that Freddie had to be seriously ill, with AIDS being cited as the likely culprit. Freddie denied this fact, insisting he was merely quote-unquote exhausted and too busy to give interviews. 
Of course, as we know now, Freddie had been diagnosed with HIV in 1987, but did not make his illness public, and only his inner circle was aware of his condition in his final years. Queen released the album The Miracle in 1989, and The Miracle was the first album that had all music credited to Queen instead of the individual members, as far as like songwriting was concerned. 1991 saw the release of the album Innuendo. The music video for the song The Show Must Go On featured archive footage of Queen performances from between 81 to 89. That, coupled with the song's lyrics, further fueled rumors that Freddie was sick and or dying. By this point, Freddie was becoming sicker and sicker by the day and could barely walk, partially in part due to a wound on his leg that wouldn't close due to his immunocompromised state. On November 23, 1991, in a prepared statement made on his deathbed, Freddie confirmed that he did, in fact, have AIDS. Within 24 hours of this statement, he was gone. He was just 45 years old. Roger had been just blocks away from the house when it happened and was heading there to see his friend one last time. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. Queen's last album with Freddie would release in 1995, featuring previously unreleased songs and reworked material from their solo albums. Roger and Brian still tour as Queen to this day, still selling out stadiums full of rabid Queen fans, including me. Also, they just announced a new tour three weeks ago, and I'm trying to figure that out so I can go because I really want to go again. John was deeply affected by Freddie's death and hung on with Queen for a little bit longer, but he has not toured with the band since the 90s and has a quiet life in retirement when the paparazzi aren't bugging him. Currently, Adam Lambert of American Idol fame performs as the frontman. Plans to make a film based on the first 15-ish years of the band Queen, from Foundation to Live Aid, was announced by Brian May in 2010. Sasha Baron Cohen of Borad fame was attached to play Freddie Mercury. Brian further confirmed the following year in April that the production was moving forward. There would be a movie about Queen happening. Brian had approved of Baron Cohen as Freddie, but did express concerns and reservations about the project's possible direction, as Brian and the other members of the band were concerned that anything too gritty would be a mar on, on Freddie Mercury's legacy. In July 2013, Cohen left the project. It was a mutually agreed departure, citing creative differences. He'd wanted a grittier portrayal of Freddie, which the band was vehemently against. In reality, Freddie lived a full rock and roll lifestyle, the details of which began bubbling up towards the end of his life and certainly in the years after. Freddie was it turned out he was he was a deeply flawed individual like like we all are. He made some, you know, not great decisions and one might even be able to argue quite easily that he was quite careless with his lifestyle specifically after he received his HIV diagnosis, which isn't great. It was very disappointing learning that actually. So, I get, you know, it's kind of like last week with them wanting to sort of protect their friend's legacy, but at what point, by trying to protect the legacy, does it also destroy the legacy in a different way? After a couple of rumored replacements to play Freddy, it was announced in November 2016 that Rami Malek, who had gained major notoriety for his work on the television show Mr. Robot, was cast to play Freddie Mercury. In August 2017, the rest of the band was announced. Ben Hardy would play Roger, Gwilym Lee would play Brian, and Joe Mazzello would play John. 
Principal photography kicked off in London in September 2017 with Queen archivist Greg Brooks being an instrumental part of helping the production recreate the performances as true to life as possible. When Malik was contacted about playing Freddie Mercury, he had only a casual knowledge of Queen. So to embody the the, the person, Malik went to work and had many intense sessions with m- movement coaches who were present throughout shooting. He also took singing and piano classes and had an accent coach because he is American and obviously Freddie was English or had an English accent. Rather, he was Zanzibarian. Though despite taking vocal lessons, he is actually not singing in the movie. He's either miming to the Queen Masters or with discarded bits of audio that was Freddie, but also a voice double was used. This guy was named Mark Martell, and he had actually been the winner of a Queen live tour audition. So he sounds incredibly like him. So that's how they got away with it. Rami Malek, as far as I'm aware, and I'm pretty confident in this, does not sing a note in the film as Freddie Mercury. So this movie had a little bit of controversy happened during the shooting of it, which started out on December 1st, 2017, after The Hollywood Reporter published an article stating that the film had temporarily halted production due to the, quote, unexpected unavailability of director Brian Singer. Sources close to the production said that Singer had just full-on not returned to set after the Thanksgiving week holiday, which had occurred in late November. Discussions immediately began about replacing him because they only had about three weeks left of production, so they kind of needed to get this film finished. So while they looked for a replacement or figured out what the hell was going on, cinematographer Newton Thomas Seigel stepped in to direct for those first couple of days. Singer blamed his absence on his sick mother, which may have been true, but it was also it also probably had something to do with the fact that there was a lot of allegations that were coming up against him about him being a little bit of a sexual predator. There was also rumors of him and Malik getting into it quite a bit and he would also be arriving late to set, so he was just being super unprofessional. So, for whatever reason, Singer did not come back and on December 4th he was formally fired as director. By this point, there's about two weeks of scheduled principal photography left. Two days after that, Dexter Fletcher was announced as Singer's replacement, and on December 15th, filming resumed with Fletcher directing. Fletcher guessed later that only about two-thirds of the film was actually completed when he joined the film. The film ran over, and reshoots were also required to have this yield a complete film. And despite Dexter Fletcher being the one to finish the film and oversee post and do all the other stuff, Brian Singer was still credited as director. Although Fletcher replaced him before filming was completed, there was the pesky fact that Singer had hired the cast, the crew, and actually still shot the majority of the film. Producer Graham King announced in June 2018 that Singer would have to receive the directing credit on the finished film because their hands were tied, but Fletcher would receive an executive producer credit. But of course, you know, it says Brian Singer, but we all know who really finished this movie. Upon its release in late October, early November 2018, Bohemian Rhapsody was so-sewed by critics, but it was very clear that audiences were in love with the movie. I love Queen, and I think I saw this movie like six times in theaters. I'm, I'm one of the people that was, was super into this movie. I will not lie. Bohemian Rhapsody grossed $910 million at the world box office, which was 20 times higher than what it cost to shoot it, making it the highest grossing musical biopic of all time. 
The film was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and took home the awards for Best Editing, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Actor for Rami Malek. In August 2021, Brian May revealed that there was a possibility of a Bohemian Rhapsody sequel, though it would be a matter of topping the original and could possibly take years to get the screenplay right. Knowing Hollywood and the amount of money the first movie made, this is almost for sure going to happen, let's be honest. So if you've seen the film Bohemian Rhapsody and just heard my history lesson about Queen, you may notice some discrepancies. And and yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of what not right in this movie. So starting right at the top, the conflict between Freddie and his family was nowhere near as dramatic as portrayed in the film. They were never estranged. The film also suggests that Freddie was sent to boarding school because he was a little bit rambunctious and rowdy. And it also betrays his indifference to his cultural background. And the decision to change his name was a sort of tension within the family. Freddie's mother, Jer, claimed in a 2012 interview that Freddie was sent to boarding school in India, but it was to get a better education, not because of any like behavioral problems. Brian also stated that Freddie's parents were actually very supportive of the band and would attend Queen concerts if they were performing nearby for the duration of their career. Freddie's mother and sister also claimed that while Freddie was not religious per se, he was proud of his ancestry in private. In fact, Freddie's funeral was conducted in accordance with Zoroastrian customs. Then there's the formation of, the, of Queen, which we see in the film. It was not as simple as portrayed in the film. In it, Freddie approaches Brian and Roger shortly after Staffel announced his departure from the band. In reality, they all knew each other. Roger and Freddie were roommates and business partners, for Christ's sakes. And Freddie had expressed interest in joining Smile long before Staffel had left the band. Also, Smile had more than three members when Staffel left. In the film, after Freddie joins Smile, but before the band becomes Queen, they play a sloppy first gig together. Freddie's off-tempo, he breaks the microphone stand, creating his signature mic look, and the group is just all over the place. In reality, Freddie was a seasoned performer by the time this first performance happened, having formerly been in the band Ibex. The broken mic stand thing is also something Freddie did during his Ibex days, so it didn't come out of being in Smile. They also crushed their first gig by all accounts. And as I mentioned earlier, John Deacon was not the original bassist. During this fabled first gig, he just appears on stage being like, here's the new bassist. The film also leaves out many details about Freddie's relationships with Mary Austin and Jim Hutton, or just changes them completely. Uh, Jim was his long-term partner, by the by. Freddie did not meet Mary Austin on the same night he joined Smile slash Queen. He actually met her through Brian because they had briefly dated, but Mary did not meet Freddie until he was already a part of the band. Throughout the film, you kind of see Mary having a relationship with Freddie through long distance phone calls. In reality, she toured with Queen throughout the 1970s, and she even worked with Freddie's management company during the 1980s. So she was very in the mix. Also, Jim Hutton was not a server at one of Mercury's parties. That's how they're seen meeting in the film. He was actually a hairdresser at the Savoy Hotel when he met Freddie, and they met at a nightclub. They also met for the first time in 1983 and not in 1981 like the film depicts. 
There's also a sequence in the movie when the members of Queen are stranded on the side of the road with a flat on their van, and they discuss that they might be able to afford to make an album. Freddie convinces the other three to sell their van and also take some of their own money to produce their first album. In reality, the band had free recording time at Trident in exchange for ownership of whatever they yielded. The character of the radio executive Foster, who was portrayed by Mike Myers, is a fictional person, though he is allegedly loosely based on EMI chief Roy Featherstone. While Featherstone and others did think that Bohemian Rhapsody was too long to be released as a single, Featherstone was a fan of the band. He wasn't like exacerbated about them as portrayed in the film. And, you know, they also get into a fight in in his office and Queen allegedly quits and accuse him of, you know, being the man who will forever be known as the person who lost Queen. Didn't happen in real life. They were with Queen was with EMI throughout their career. I'm guessing Foster was also meant to represent their Trident management team, which is left completely out of the movie. I'm guessing he was more an amalgamation of both of those things put together. When it comes to the music used in the movie, some songs are shown out of order or out of their released chronological order anyway. For example, We Will Rock You was written in 1977, not in 1980 as depicted in the movie. Fat Bottom Girls wasn't written until 1978, but the film shows the band performing it in their first U.S. tour in 1974. The Rio de Janeiro concert did not take place in 1978-ish, as depicted in the film, but during the inaugural Rock and in Rio Festival in 1985, about six months before Live Aid. So Mary and Freddie would have been long since broken up. The live version for Love of My Life used in the Bohemian Rhapsody movie is actually from the 1985 Rio concert, so just wreaking havoc with the timeline. Queen did not start sharing songwriting credits in 1985 before Live Aid as laid out in a meeting with Jim Beach and the band within the film. The only albums that had the songwriting credits listed only as Queen was 89 Some Kind of Magic and 1991's Innuendo. The betrayal of Paul Prenter was also met with criticism specifically by his family. Both Brian and Roger said that Prenter's partnership with Freddie was a source of friction within Queen. Roger said in the documentary Days of Our Lives that, quote, Prenter was a very, very bad influence upon Freddie, hence on the band. Prenter's family have said that he was not disowned by his family for his sexuality, as depicted in the film, and that he did not withhold details concerning Live Aid from Freddie. Basically, Prenter was made a convenient but flawed and slightly lazy antagonist within the film. Prenter also did not work for John Reed, as was portrayed in the movie. He was a former radio DJ who became Freddie's assistant in 1977, two years after the release of Night at the Opera. So Prenter's appearance in the film occurs about three years too early. He also did not disclose details of Freddie's sex life on a German talk show, but rather in a 1987 interview for The Sun, which was a newspaper, and this was after he was no longer working for Freddie or the band. John Reed was not fired as Queen's manager after an argument with Freddie over his solo career, which was how it was depicted in the movie. The band and Reed parted amicably in 1978 by mutual agreement and for different reasons. Queen was not worried about performing together at Live Aid because they quote-unquote hadn't performed in years and they were not a last-minute addition to the Live Aid lineup. 
In reality, they had just completed a world tour of the works mere months before Live Aid and were in fact, quote, extremely well rehearsed for the show. In the film, it's stated that they hadn't performed together in years, and the other three were estranged from Freddie. While things may have been strained before the making of the works, they were at the very least, professionally speaking, very much together leading up to Live Aid. The Live Aid tracks were also shown out of order in the finale of the film and were missing two songs. Queen performed Crazy Little Thing Called Love and We Will Rock You at Live Aid, which were taken out, and these were performed after Hammer to Fall and before We Are the Champions. But this is not shown in the theatrical release of the film, probably because those two songs were used extensively earlier in the film and they didn't want to be repetitive. Similarly, Radio Gaga and Hammer to Fall were also shorter in the film than they were performed in the original concert. When the film was released on home video, the bonus features include a full recreation, basically movement by movement, it's actually very impressive how they did it, of the entire Live Aid concert. A major issue many people took with the film, other than almost completely glossing over Freddy's personal life, or at least the the negative sides of it, or not negative sides, but controversial sides of it, depending on where you are in the world, was the film's dealing with Freddy's HIV diagnosis, which caused probably the most uproar and probably was the most irresponsible storytelling of all of these things. Daily Beast writer Kevin Fallon called the film's handling of Mercury's HIV diagnosis, quote, a cruel and manipulative version of tragedy porn that is inaccurate and perpetrates the trope of AIDS as punishment for gay promiscuity. In reality, Freddie didn't know he had HIV until two years after Live Aid. He likely had the disease during the Live Aid performance based on when he started exhibiting symptoms, but Freddie was not diagnosed, like I said, until 1987, two years later. According to Roger, the band members were not made aware of his condition until an additional two years later in 1989. So yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody is a far more flattering than it probably should have been when it comes to the life of Freddie Mercury, and in some ways was super irresponsible with its depiction of the charismatic frontman. It smoothed out some of the rougher edges of the rock star's life and probably left out more than they should have, while just hitting shuffle on a lot of the other details. What Bohemian Rhapsody ends up being is a much more fairy tale esque look at the band, a rose colored glasses betrayal of the flamboyant Freddie Mercury and Queen, keeping Freddie to the public at large, the same enigma he tried to be while he was alive. I enjoyed the show. I also write songs. Our lead singer just quit. Then you'll need someone new. I love the way you move on stage. Room belongs to you. Don't you see what you could be? No one will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Do it again. One more. How many more Galileos do you want? Roger, there's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. 
I've got a Letterboxd account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. We've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you just buy me a coffee. Today, I caved into capitalistic pressure and trendiness and tried that Starbucks coffee with the olive oil in it, which I actually liked, but I did get the hot one because it felt like a bad idea to try and get cold olive oil in a drink, which kind of the negative images that are online, I was like, well, that's just science. So obviously you get it hot, don't get a cold olive oil thing. But maybe that's just me using common sense. It's not bad. I've definitely had worse Starbucks coffee. Actually makes the Starbucks coffee taste less burnt. So if anything, it's just uh, it's just a good thing for them, I guess. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, we separate fact from fiction between the Sex Pistols and the film Sid and Nancy. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.